Welcome, everybody. Um, we are really pleased and honored to have Dr. James Hildreth with us today. Um, Dr. Hildreth is president and CEO of Meharry Medical College right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Meharry is the largest private, historically black university dedicated to educating healthcare professionals, doctors, dentists, nurses, allied health professionals. He is also a member of the Nashville Virus Task Force and has really been helping guide us through the coronavirus pandemic. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> and lastly, I have to say we're very honored because he was recently appointed to be a member of President Biden's White House National COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. James, you keep very busy. How do you do it? <laughs> well, uh, part of it is having a great team around me, so I don't have to worry about a great many things. So I couldn't do it without the team I have, and, and kudos to them, and thanks to them for the work that they do every day. Great, great. Well, welcome so much, and uh, we're really pleased that you could join us. Uh, I do have to say, um, I was thinking back to medical school, and I know we talked a little bit about this, but back in my medical school, which was the late 80s, we were studying um, a retrovirus that at that time was causing an epidemic, both in the US and, and in the world. Um, it was HIV. And I know you've done a lot of work on that, but isn't it fascinating how the work of HIV is now helping inform us on how we guide through the coronavirus pandemic? I, you're, you're right, uh, Jay. And as a matter of fact, my whole career has been focused on HIV. Uh, when I was a medical student back in 1981, it's when the first, we didn't call it HIV or AIDS at the time, but that's when the first cases were identified. And as a medical student, one of the first patients I took care of was in fact a young African-American woman who had just given birth to a baby and both she and the baby were infected with the virus HIV. It was then called HTLV-3. And there was nothing we could do for them except treat the symptoms and watch them die. And as a matter of fact, I changed my plans from becoming a transplant surgeon to becoming an HIV-focused uh, doctor because of that patient and the experience I had. Oh, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing how um, the learnings have prepared us, um, you know, and especially as a virologist, just the intense uh, study of viruses um, yes. of the ages. Yes, and, and uh, I think you're right. The point you make cannot be underscored. The lessons we learned from fighting HIV had a huge impact on the rapid response to COVID-19. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the reasons why the vaccines could be developed so quickly was because of the infrastructure we have developed for HIV vaccines. It was simply turned to COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. And that's one of the factors that led to the rapid development of the vaccines. Yeah, that's just fascinating. Um, so tell me, uh, James, look back on 2020. Um, do you have like six words that you could <laughs> help us understand what 2020 was for you? 
six words. Uh, well, <laughs> there, there are quite a few words. First yeah. one, it was clearly unexpected. Nobody expected to have, uh, you know, to deal with a pandemic. Um, then it was unnerving for me, unnerving because knowing the things I know about viruses and pandemics, it was unnerving to watch the national response be so uncoordinated, right? Yeah. It was really, really, uh, uh, on the other hand, it was inspiring for me to watch uh, the people at Meharry and, and the healthcare workers, the response mm -hmm. everyone made to it, the way they yeah. jumped in to fight it was pretty inspiring. Uh, it was also humbling, right? Because mm -hmm. as virologists and immunologists, we think we know a lot about these things, but when something like this happens, it points out to how little we know, how much we have to learn. Uh, and, and so, you know, the other thing I think that at the end of the day, uh, the 2020 meant for me was a, it is more than one word, but you were challenged to, to bring to bear all that you've learned in your life, you had to bring it to bear on this mm -hmm. problem, which was also uh, in some ways exhilarating because me as a virologist and immunologist, if there was ever a time that I could play a role in solving a big problem, this was it. So that was kind of exhilarating, you know, to be to be able to to bring to bear all the skill sets, knowledge, and experiences on a problem that's so important. So 2020 was a year like none other. I can tell you that it was un <laughs> unpre unprecedented, is what I yeah. hear a lot too. And yes, and you know, I got to tell you, just being able to um, rise the challenge. Um, it is inspiring, I have to say. Um, yes. Can you tell me a little bit? Um, so we're focused a lot on seniors and senior care. Do you have any memory of a, a grandparent or a senior that was impactful for you? So uh, unfortunately, I did not have a chance to know any of my four grandparents. They all passed away. Uh, one of them, the last one passed away when I was about six or seven months old. Um, so I didn't have that, that joy of getting to know them. There were several though elders that I got to know that were very important. One was um, a member of our church. Um, mm -hmm. I think her name was Mrs. Hawkins. And she, along with my mother, she's probably 20 years older than my mother. So she was kind of like the grandmother I didn't have. Yeah. And She's one of the ones who kept me encouraged because uh, very few people besides my teachers and my mother knew my aspirations to do the things I wanted to do. And many of them, if they had known them, would have probably tried to talk me out of it because it was such, seemed like such an impossible dream. But uh, she's one of the ones who kept me focused, uh, kept me encouraged, and I, I will always be grateful to her. Um, and she never made it past, I think, the fifth grade or something like that. But she was so wise and and uh, when she spoke, people listened just because of her presence and, and all of yeah. that. I was a little bit terrified of her, to be honest with you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but she's one of the ones who, who, who kept me encouraged and focused and I, I'm, I'm going to be eternally grateful to her. That, that's a great story. I'll just tell you a quick, you know, so I grew up on a, in a very small town in Minnesota and I worked with my grandfather a lot. Um, yeah. And just like the, um, your uh, senior that you just uh, spoke about, he only went through the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. 
he was one of the smartest people I've ever been around. And right. so much fr from him. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so James, I, I do wanna um, ask you about, um, this is, I, it's brought to bear the disproportionately affected people of color from COVID-19. Uh, COVID has really uncovered, you know, the issues that we've, as medical professionals, we've been aware of, but maybe not as intimately faced um, with it. And Black people are 1.6 times the death rate of white people in COVID-19. So can you help us understand, like, how did we get here? What's the science behind this disparity? Well, so starting with the the pandemic, you're right, the, the pandemic kind of shone a bright light on a problem that's been here for a long time. Uh, but, you know, if you look back in China, now China is a huge company country with over a billion people. But the data we got out of China early on was that if you were older, if you smoked, if you had hypertension, diabetes, and other kinds of conditions, you're much more likely to get very sick and to die. So if you take what's observed in China and projected onto the United States, we kind of knew almost immediately who those persons were. Mm -hmm. If you are a member of a minority community, you're much more likely to have hypertension, diabetes, be obese, yeah. uh, and all that. So it was predicted and predictable that African-Americans would bear the brunt of COVID-19. Uh, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this is not a new problem. Yeah. These, uh, these problems have existed for decades. We still see a significant difference in life expectancy between African-Americans and whites, especially for males. So it's not a new problem. It's just yeah. that few things could have illustrated it for the whole world like this pandemic has done, uh, given the numbers that we're seeing. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think it's a reflection of what are called the social determinants of health where, as you probably know, Jay, that, that yeah. our healthcare or our overall health is only a fraction of that is determined by access to doctors and healthcare. Most of it has to do with behavior and where you live. Yeah. Where you live and your behaviors uh, pretty much dictate how healthy you're going to be. And unfortunately, issues around structural racism means that some of those social determinants for minorities are not conducive to being healthy. And we have to find ways to start to address those things. You know, I was um, listening to Dr. David Williams. Yes. I repeat this a lot, but, you know, he basically says your zip code is a more powerful predictor. That's correct. Than your genetic code. That's correct. I remember uh, a study which looked at, I believe it was in Louisville, but I think you could take many cities and you look at zip codes and life expectancy. And even along a subway line, you'd see um, a disparity there. What is it about the community where you live that really impacts your health? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with economic attainment and educational attainment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I know that in Washington, DC, for example, there are two zip codes. I don't remember which two there are but there's a decade difference in life expectancy for white men and black men. I mean, think about that, 10 years. Amazing. Here, here in the United States, but 
but you know, the zip code determines whether or not there are parks, places to walk and exercise, access to, to grocery stores with fresh vegetables versus quick pick stores where you get high, high caloric foods, but are not very nutritious. So there are a lot of these things that I refer to the social determinants of health that are illustrated quite dramatically by zip codes. And so I think Dr. Williams is, re is really correct that in a lot of ways, these social determinants that I've referred to mm -hmm. can be illustrated <laughs> quite easily by picking zip codes and looking at what's available to the persons who live there, the housing, the kind of jobs they do, whether or not there are parks and sidewalks for walking and exercising. So it's, it's a point that we need to be focused on as we try to eliminate these disparities, it's, it's a major factor. You know, it's interesting because we, we talked a little bit about, you know, medical school, but I don't recall a lot of um, education on the social determinants in medical school when I was going through. I don't know if it's for you, but how, how is it now? Is, is education playing a role now in, in bringing this to light? I'm, I'm very excited that now the AAMC the, I'm sorry, the American Association of Medical Colleges, for those who don't that's know. Right, that's right, that's yeah. <laughs> right. They, they, they are working with the medical schools to try to put more, I would call them social studies, kind of a little old fashioned, mm -hmm. but to try to make sure that, that medical students understand that these social determinants are very important. Yeah. Uh, at Meharry Medical College, I'm happy to say that probably by necessity, We've been more focused on these than perhaps some other mm -hmm. uh, places have been. I'm also very proud of the fact that 80% of our graduates practice in underserved areas when they leave us, most of those as, as, as primary care doctors. Uh, and the way I think about it is that, you know, medicine has three pillars. There's the science of medicine, the business of medicine, and the art of medicine. That's and right. the art of medicine is where we get to understand how important these social factors are. And I think that going forward, there needs to be a more emphasis on that art of medicine in terms of how we teach it, how we do it, how we practice it. So I'm, I'm encouraged that there is now more attention being paid as we train new physicians, but we've got a long way to go. We, we really yeah. Do. You know, it was really interesting, like the human part of, of medicine, the human touch. And it's, uh, I know as a pre-med student, you really focus on making sure you get those sciences and you get exactly yes. and stuff. Yeah. But more and more, I think schools have paid attention to, you know, the other factors, right? The humanness factors that uh, play a role. I, yes. And I think uh, one great example of that is, and you probably know, Jay, that it's been documented now that there is even bias in treatment plans. Yeah. But two patients who are otherwise identical, and this was done with model patients, obviously, mm -hmm. where you have two people with the same job, same income, same zip code, same everything, except yeah. one is black and one is white. It's startling how many times the black person will get the not so advanced treatment plan compared to. So, so there's now focus on that in medical school training. So mm -hmm. I think that some things are happening that make me feel encouraged that we're gonna see a different picture emerging. It's gonna take some time, but at least there's a focus on it. Yeah. Uh, but I also like the fact that as a result of all that transpired last summer with the death of George Floyd, 
that was a wake up call for large organizations and many of them are now more focused than they had been on these kinds of issues. And it's gonna take all of us together, not just the healthcare professions, but other kinds of organizations as well to be focused on this because it's a problem across our whole society. It, it really is. Um, you know, I'd really like to have your perspective on, you know, mistrust of the health healthcare system as a major factor contributing to really vaccination rates and and other, I guess, access to care. Uh, but yes, people of color do have kind of disproportionate mistrust of the system. How deep seated is that? What 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 is that? Um, well, Jay, it's pretty deep seated, and I think that the first thing I think we all have to do, and I do this as a part of my conversations with people about this, which I have a, yeah. quite a few of those. We first have to accept and acknowledge that there, there's a really good basis for African-Americans and people of color to have a little bit of hesitancy, maybe not so little, but hesitancy when it comes to medical research, medicine and vaccines. Uh, yeah. We all are familiar with the Tuskegee experiment that went on for decades with African-American men who had syphilis and even when penicillin was available, they didn't get it to treat their disease. We have the involuntary sterilization of black and brown women uh, in this country. Uh, but to be honest with you, the atrocities that have been visited upon black bodies and brown bodies goes all the way back to 1619. So as far as I'm concerned, one of the things we have to do is to acknowledge that maybe there's a legitimate basis for the hesitancy and mistrust, but then we have to start to dispel some of the myths and perceptions, misperceptions with facts. And we have to do that with trusted messengers. And that's what we've been trying to do is to identify the organizations and persons who are respected by, by minority communities and have be, them be the ones who engage those communities in these conversations. And I think that's having an impact, I, I, I think so. Uh, but we have to acknowledge that there is a basis for it mm -hmm. and then sort of identify what the main questions are and try to find the answers to those questions and make sure that the people answering those questions are people who are respected and trusted by the communities. Do you think that um, with um, medical schools and the, I'll say it for many years, lack of diversity mm -hmm. contributed to that, um, to overcome you know, that mistrust? I, 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 well, I definitely think so. You know, uh, I don't know how many, I think there's 900, between 900,000, 900,000 and a million licensed physicians in the country right now. Yeah. Um, and less than 5% of them are African-American, even though we're 13% of the population. So if you continue to engage in the healthcare enterprise and you don't see persons who look like yourself, yeah. uh, that adds to the sense of, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even if that person is not taking care of you, to know that someone who looks like you, who comes from your background and culture is a part of the enterprise, gives an added degree of confidence that you're gonna be treated uh, fairly. One of the issues that I can tell you has been a problem from my perspective as someone who's been in academic medicine a long time, and there's no other way to put this except that for a lot of people in, in the enterprise, 
quality looks like themselves. In other words, they seem to believe that if I admit to the academy, someone who doesn't look like me, I'm gonna be lowering the quality of my programs. And the research is very clear that just the opposite is true. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've got to do a better job of, of, of trying to lead with data, lead with facts to try to dispel some of these things, both on the side of those who are receiving the care and on the side of those who are giving the care. And I think that's the work we have to be engaged in. But as I said earlier, I'm really excited that I see some real changes happening. Gives me hope for the future. Yeah, I wonder if you could like help us understand, you know, so at Nava Health, we have uh, clinicians that are locally sourced uh, from the communities that they mm -hmm. But even so, many of our white clinicians um, will be taking care of people of color. Um, and we've had uh, a number of um, sessions on this, but I'd love your, you know, take on how to recognize implicit bias and then start to take some action what would what advice would you have for us to recognize and take some action so my advice is that we have to uh first of all we've got to talk about this openly yeah because first we haven't been talking about this as a no. as you know we, 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 yeah. it's a it's a hard thing to talk about but part of the solution is finding time and the means to have those difficult conversations. And we have to create some safe spaces. And I know people talk about that. But from my perspective, what that means is that you leave your titles at the door, you go into a room, and it's just a group of human beings having conversations with each other, yeah. right? And if you do that, you realize very quickly that all of us want pretty much the same things. Physicians, we want the best outcome for our patients. We want to be recognized when we do things well. Right. We expect to be to get support when we need to improve on things. But I think what happens is there's there there becomes revealed to all of us that we all pretty much want the same things if we're physicians or scientists or otherwise. But there has to be room for safe conversations where people can talk about this and feel that they're not going to be penalized or or you know targeted or anything like that and that's why it's so important to find a way to truly leave the titles and 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 things at the door and the reason why that's important is oftentimes in organizations the leadership might not be very diverse and the conversation you need to have are going to be with people who are not part of the leadership so if you don't make it clear that these conversations can be safely had the conversations won't be as rich and honest as they need to be. So I think that we need to, to start having those conversations where people can speak freely. And once that happens, there are gonna be some hurt feelings maybe, mm -hmm. but past, getting past that, all of us will be better for it. And even at Mahara, we're trying to find ways to do that, right? Because yeah. we're, we're trying to create a space where, as some people have put it, all of us can bring our whole person to work every day. That we don't, have, we don't have to leave parts of us at home. And to be honest, the, the enterprise itself, the organization itself gets stronger when all of us bring our best selves to work every day. And we can't do that if we're leaving part of ourselves at home. 
You know, especially, especially in healthcare where we're dealing with people that are in vulnerable situations, there has to be trust. Right. Uh, I'll right. just give you one quick example at a hospital where I was the chief of staff at one point in my career. We changed our name badges and so that the doctors had their first names and said, call me Bob, call me Jay. Um, and <laughs> from, you know, I'll tell you this, there was a time when, when a physician walked onto the ward, like all the nurses stood up, you know, so that there was like this authority gradient. Wow. That was broken down by saying, listen, I am one of the team and we want you to call me, just call me Jay, right? I'm here to help, just like we're all here for the patient. So what you're talking about, I think, is really important um, to get, bring your whole self. I think so. Uh, and again, because at the moment, at least, leadership and healthcare organizations tend not to be so diverse. So if you start having conversations with the people you need to talk with, there's always going to be this this uh, power imbalance that makes mm -hmm. it challenging for some people to open up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I, I'm seeing it happening and I'm really excited about it. And I think again, there's hope to be, there's, there's reason to be hopeful that things, yeah. are gonna, things are gonna get better. So I was gonna ask you about black seniors um, yeah. in particular, specifically, because Nava Health is very much a senior oriented organization. We work with Medicare, Medicare Advantage, um, mm -hmm. and specifically around um, the impact of COVID, the consequences on Black seniors, not only from the disease perspective, but also the mitigation effects, mm -hmm. isolation, loneliness. What have you seen and, and um, how are you uh, characterizing that? Well, Jay, one of the first striking observations to make is that right now we're vaccinating around the country in most places, mm -hmm. people who are 75 years and older. Yep. And in some places, those numbers are skewed because not as many black folks live to be in that age group yeah. compared to, right. to whites. That's even the case here in Davidson County, from what mm -hmm. I understand. So that's, that's the first thing that's revealed in uh, this process is that it just shows you, as I was saying earlier, there are some zip codes in this country where there might be as many as a 10 year gap in the life expectancy of, yes. of versus whites. Uh, the other thing is the, the hesitancy that we've been talking about in terms of vaccines and engaging the medical enterprise in some parts of the, work, of the country, especially in the, in the South, deep South, Mm -hmm. the, there's a there's a gradient that the older African Americans have some memories of some times that were very challenging for them that make them uh, hard to convince that yeah. they should trust the 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 healthcare that's right. uh, infrastructure right and that's why I think it's really important that we identify for those individuals persons that they trust implicitly and have them be engaged with those individuals. That can be church leaders, it can be, you know, African-American healthcare providers, but that's a group I worry about because uh, yeah. for a lot of them, they live in multi-generational, they have lived in multi-generational households mm -hmm. where there's a, a, a greater threat of the virus getting in and doing them harm. 
So this isolation has been especially challenging for them and their mental health has suffered tremendously. Yeah. And I think that um, we need to be more focused on that as we go forward. And I think that's gonna be one of the things that the, the Biden, President Biden's task force is focused on is mental health and the impact that isolation has had. So I think you bring up a really excellent point that yeah. that group in particular uh, is very worrisome for a lot of reasons. Uh, and so we gotta find ways to address that. Yeah, I was, you know, I was interested in this topic pre-COVID, you know, loneliness in seniors and social yeah. isolation was really an epidemic even before COVID. And right. there were a lot of initiatives to say, how can we as a society combat the, you know, an isolated senior who really struggles? Um, do you think that um, with some of the, I guess, emergence of virtual care, that this is going to stick uh, after COVID and we'll be able to use more virtual means uh, for this? Well, I think that for seniors, again, especially for seniors from minority communities, there's, okay. there's still going to be a need for in-person yeah. uh, consultations and contact. Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of them, the technologies that you need to do virtual visits or telemedicine, we found this to be a problem at Meharry that a lot of the patients that we wanted to do telemedicine for and with, the they didn't have access to internet. They didn't have the basic technologies that yeah, others took. Right. So we had to, fortunately, we got a grant from the FCC to get those things mm -hmm. for them. But mm -hmm. I think for that reason uh, and some others, for seniors at least, we should still probably plan to have either social workers or care managers or someone on a routine mm -hmm. basis go and be there present with them because it's going to be important to their overall health, in my opinion. Yeah. We have a program here, James, that utilizes community health workers um, yeah. that go in um, and assess and help with those social determinants that you you mm -hmm. and in some ways it, it's been a challenge because we don't have a good economic model to pay for these types of resources to help us and um, I don't know if you have any thoughts around just how we can move the business of medicine into understanding you know this is really important I totally agree and uh, if we want to lower the overall cost of healthcare in this country, mm -hmm. paying for the kinds of things that you're describing would yeah. be a good way to do that because mm -hmm. it means paying less for other more expensive kinds of care that result from not doing these things. And so as far as I'm concerned, uh, paying for social, social services of those sorts would reduce mm -hmm. the overall cost for all of us. I mean, after all, we're spending three and a half trillion dollars a year on healthcare and yeah. we're not among the top 10 healthiest nations. That's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And it's because we need to spend a little bit more, a lot more actually on the kinds of things that you're describing. Yeah. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about, you know, in the nursing homes. Um, so there was a, actually a, just a recent study that came out about the racial differences of nursing homes uh -huh. and the death rate 
really 3.3 fold higher death count in nursing homes that had a majority non-white resident. Right. right. This is shocking. I mean, it's it shocking, frankly. It is shocking. Yeah. And is there is there help on the way for that? <laughs> well, I, I certainly hope so because you know something somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of all the deaths that have happened in the United States from COVID were people living in congregate settings like that. Yep. So but this all relates to something we talked about earlier that for a lot of the individuals who are in nursing homes, the 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 brown and black people living there have a lot more chronic conditions. Yeah. The elderly whites who are there. Mm -hmm. And again, that reflects that you have a lifetime of not having good management of chronic conditions that results in elderly individuals who are much more fragile and subject to COVID-19 than others might be. So it all comes back to we've, what been, we've been talking about. We need to have a better overall approach to health that includes managing chronic conditions, but mm -hmm. also trying to make sure people don't have those conditions in the first place. Yeah. which takes back to those social determinants. So they're all, all these things are connected and they yeah. just come back to a central theme, which is we as a country need to re-examine what we define as health and healthcare. What we really do is we do great sick care, but we've not been attentive to, to health in a way that we, we should be. And I hope that we will be going forward. That's so true. Um, and I know you've been a strong advocate for a national strategy when it comes to COVID. Yes. I wonder if you could help us understand like how you think a, a national strategy, what would be some components or? Um... Well, so Jay, here's how I think about it, right? Yeah. The pandemic happens and we take what I would say is a population approach to mitigation, which means we assume the risk is the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. So we ask everyone to do the same things. We provide the same approaches and protocols to everyone. We knew from January, actually, that the risk was not the same for everyone. That's right. What I suggested was, and my, my voice still is not one that's listened to necessarily, is that every nursing home in the United States of America should have been screened for COVID. The, yep. the people who live in there, the staff, and we should have been focused because they're the most vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to save lives, which should be our goal, you focus on the most vulnerable first. You don't assume that the risk is the same for everybody because it's clearly not. So yeah. I would have, and I actually said this many times, mm -hmm. we, should be, we should be focused on the most vulnerable populations. And who is that in the United States? It's elderly individuals living in nursing homes and assisted living facilities who are older and have chronic conditions. We know they're going to be the first to be taken by this virus. We should have, we could have saved tens of thousands, probably over a hundred thousand lives could still be with us if we had done that. So that that's that's really the heart of what I'm suggesting is less focused on the most vulnerable, and then that way we would make the best use of resources and save the maximum number of lives. It's, it's, uh, it was really, I think, looking back, it'll be a tragedy that it took us so long to really understand that fundamental principle that you're, I think, um, really 
a very strong proponent for, and I, I really thank you for being a strong voice like that. Um, so um, I know you're a, a virologist, so an expert, and I think I, and I'm a surgeon, so you gotta um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I recall any virus being totally eradicated from the planet other than I think smallpox. Um, Correct. Other viruses seem to have been, say, stay with us. Mm -hmm. um, so can you um, put on your prognosticator hat and help us understand where, where do we, where are we going to go in the future with the pandemic under control? Is it going to be an endemic? Are we going to be living with it? Um, is there more pandemics coming? Uh, well, your, your last question is an easy one. Yes, there will be future pandemics. There's, there's no question about that. No uh, question. For example, the coronavirus family has almost 40 members, and a lot of those other viruses have the same. It's called zoonosis. When a virus jumps out of animals into humans, we call that a zoonotic process. And there are mm -hmm. lots of viruses still out there that have that potential. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is the world has become a really small place that people are moving freely around the world. And yeah. we are the vectors for the virus. Wherever we go, we can take the virus with us. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the first world nations, so to speak, need to, for their own best interest, make sure the whole world is vaccinated. Because yeah. you probably have heard or seen reports where there are parts of the world that we don't expect to get the vaccine for two or three years. That's not that's not a that's not a good thing, right? Because as long as the virus has a population to freely replicate in, mm -hmm. variants will continue to arise. Mm -hmm. And the great danger is a variant will arise for which the vaccines we currently have are not effective. Because keep in mind that all the vaccines that have been produced, and I understand this, but I think it's somewhat of a mistake. They all had the same target antigen, the spike protein. Every the single spike. one of the vaccines that have been made are targeting the, the spike protein. And the, the point is that if we had vaccines that included other components of the virus and maybe stimulated what are called killer T cells, for example, we might have better protection than just focusing on this one, yeah. one virus protein. But the danger is literally every time the virus infects a person, there's a potential for a variant to arise. Variants, yeah. And when you're infecting a hundred and, I don't know how many million it is now, a hundred million people are, have been host to the virus. Imagine how many variants could arise with that amount of virus. And so since everyone in the world is experiencing this, if the first world countries get themselves vaccinated, but the virus is out of control in the rest of the world, a variant could arise for which our vaccines are not useful. We'd yeah. have to go all the way back to square one. So it is in the best interest of the whole planet That's that right. we make sure that everyone who needs the vaccine gets it, because then all of us can rest a little bit easier, right? You, you know, I got to tell you, that is so well said. Um, James, you've articulated the, the really the, the value proposition for us as the first world to really push to have you know the third world vaccinated as soon as possible. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm 
That's really, really well said. So my last, my last question, um, I just would love to get your advice for Nava Health um, and, you know, how we Nava Health can basically look at um, people of color and kind of recognize, you know, we have a lot of um, conversations like you were talking about. Yeah. What advice would you give to um, those of us that are white caregivers um, when it comes to taking care of people of color? My, the main thing for me, is just comes down to some very basic things. I think as long as people are treated with dignity and respect mm -hmm. and there are no prior assumptions about their value as a human being, that if every person sitting in front of you gets your best effort as a physician and you treat them all with the same dignity and respect, I think that just goes a long, long way to making sure that people are going to be responsive and compliant, right? Mm -hmm. If if a person that you're taking care of doesn't really trust that you have their best interest in mind, yeah. they might not necessarily fill the prescription you've written or take your advice about how to live their lives. But if you treat them with dignity and respect, and you know, my mother, for example, before she passed, would complain about going to the doctor because she would tell me, son, they never, they never look at me directly. They never talk to me directly. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I just feel so uncomfortable when I go. And, and that's a good example of what I'm talking about, that if you just mm -hmm. afford all of your patients the same level of respect and dignity, I think that would, that would solve a world of problems. And that would be my, that, that's my advice. Well, I have to say, this does tie in nicely with what you said earlier about, you know, medicine um, and that art of medicine. Yes. What yes. you're describing is 100% the art of medicine, of showing people that you care. Right. And you probably heard this. I heard this growing up. My, you know, the seniors around my table, aunts, uncles, um, when they mm -hmm. would talk about their doctor, it was they were talking away about what the doctor did or didn't do and what he should have yes. done. Yes. I, yes. I think if you, as a physician, as a caregiver, can say, well, I really care about you, and that comes across. I think we will um, kind of move forward uh, in this art of medicine. Right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We really appreciate it. It's been fascinating, and I can't thank you enough. Jay, thank you for having me, and, and uh, congratulations on the great work you're doing and taking care of our seniors. It's much appreciated. <laughs>